Our scripture is found with a clear word in Genesis chapter number one, right at the big bear, the beginning of everything. In verse number 26, and the operative word in these scriptures is the word image, image. In verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind, that's all of us, in our image, in our likeness. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. What does it mean that you and I, all humanity, have been created in some way with the likeness of God imprinted in your life and in my life? In other words, in some way, we have within us, outside of us, we're something like God. Now we ask the question, what is God like? Well, we talk about his attributes, his characteristics, the personality of God. And their whole library spent talking about all the attributes of God. Some of the attributes of God cannot be transferred to us. Now we're made in the image of God, but we can't pick up all of his attributes. God is immutable. He doesn't change. That attribute is not available to you and to me. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Zip, he can do anything. That attribute is not available to us. He is omniscient. He knows everything, past, present, future. He is all-knowing. We can't have that attribute. It's not available to us. Omnipresence, not available to us. But what attributes can come to you and can come to me as the image that God gave to you and to me has been so scarred, bruised, and now is blurry and not clear? We can have the gift that God gave of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, long-suffering, kindness, love, understanding, compassion. All of that will help us to restore that image. But what happened to the image in the first place? We all know it's the fall of man, Adam and Eve. God said, you've got the whole garden. And they perfectly reflected the image of God And they kept that reflection because God walked with them every afternoon in that pristine, pristine creation. But God said, I've got one thing, one thing you need to know. There's one truth, one law. There are only two trees in the garden. Did you get that? The tree of life, you can eat of that. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of that tree. That was a no. But Adam and Eve decided 
as we've all decided, by the way. They're not unique in that. I'm going to run my own life. Satan said, you eat of that tree, you'll be like God. And Satan told the truth. By the way, in every temptation, there's always an allurement. There's always a scintilla of truth. Have you noticed that? That's the reason it's a temptation. It wouldn't tempt us if it were not. He said, you'll, you'll be like God. And that's true. And they ate of that fruit. They became like God in the sense they now not only knew good and joy and peace and and celebration and intimacy in the garden, but now, now, now they knew about evil. They didn't need to know about evil. And therefore, God kicked them out of the garden. Bam. Why? By the way, the picture of that is right over there in that window. It's the creation scene. Seven days of creation. Sin, there's Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. There's a sword of the cherubim, seraphim, keeping them from going back into the garden. Why did God not let them back in the garden? Because of the tree of life. If they went back in, they would eat of the tree of life, which they'd been eating of the tree of life, and they would live forever. Why couldn't they live forever? Because sin had come. If a scintilla of sin and trash and garbage gets into paradise, gets into heaven, paradise has totally changed. God will never allow that. So he kicked them out. They were thrown out on the basis of they disobeyed what was truth to God. And therefore, their image was scarred, and we were all born with our image scarred, to say it clearly. Everybody was here already bitten by the snake. Every one of us. Every one of us. That image was scarred. And in the scarring of your image and my image in this 21st century, nothing has more partially decimated that which makes you and me like God than our whole misuse of the gift of sexuality. We've all messed up in that area. If you have not, come to see me quickly because I want to sit down and visit with you because I think you are one of a kind in this 21st century. A totally misuse of the gift of sexuality. Many cultures have been as decadent, as twisted and confused about sex before. Gender confusion, all kinds of perverted activity. We're not unique in that. We didn't invent all this. Many cultures have been where we are, but never in all of history as a culture got here as fast as we have gotten here in our understanding of human sexuality. Nobody's just got here in a twinkling of an eye. To give an illustration, Barack Obama, in both of his two candidates for president, said, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. He said it the first time he's elected, he said it the second time he's elected, and hardly had he been sworn into office the second time, he totally reversed that position. And then, Away we go. Now, there are certain myths about sex that we in the church 
and everybody needs to understand myths. A myth is something a lot of people believe, but it's simply not true. The first myth is God is anti-sex. God's against sex. Man, if you're a Christian, just shut down your sex life. Boy, they don't have up in the church, those who follow Jesus Christ, my goodness, that God is anti-sex and there's two extremities here. There's a whole group of people who believe that sex is dirty. Oh, 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 it's a dirty thing. There's another group of people who believe that sex is deity. It's godlike. And therefore, we come and read the Bible and we see the Hebrew terms for sexual intimacy. What are they? One is to know, Adam knew Eve, to know, to know sexual intimacy. Another is to lie, to lie with. Another is to go into, Adam knew Eve. And anytime you see the word know, dealing with sexual intimacy, it is of God, it is in marriage, it is appropriate. But when you see the other usage of the word, David did lie with Bathsheba. Mrs. Potiphar said to Joseph, come and lay with me, come and lie with me. Abraham went into Hagar. So you got went in two, you got lie, you got lay, but you got the wonderful picture of to know, which is intimacy. What does the Bible say about sexual intimacy? Interesting. Hebrews chapter 13 says clearly that the marriage bed is holy. Sex is holy, sex is sacred. Sex was invented by God. He gave this tremendous gift to us. It is magnificent, it is beautiful, it is, and we read on in Proverbs, it says it's exhilarating and it's intoxicating. And what Proverbs is saying, sex is erotic. Oh, you heard that in church because the Bible teaches it. But it is to be practiced within marriage exclusively. That's the difference. And it is a beautiful thing. A guy named Mike has written a little book. And Mike Mason written a book called the mystery of marriage, taking the word mystery from Ephesians. And I've never read anything, I think, this long in church before. I don't read much in church. But I want to read you his view of what happens with intimacy, with sex between a man and a wife and a wife and a husband. And this is his view of it. Listen to it. He calls it the waltz of cells. I like that. He says, for the intimate parts positioned as they are can hardly be engaged without the rest of the body following suit. Even the toes and the fingers interface. 
So noses and eyelids and lips and tongues play and press against one another in an act that is visibly as well as emotionally and spiritually a passionate effort to unite. Even the simple act of kissing is powerfully symbolic of the crush of personalities. As each partner pushes his features against those of the other, as if to make one new face out of two, kissing implies losing face. It is inherently a free and wholehearted gesture of self-effacement. Much more than being a symbolic gesture, however, much more than a sign, intimacy is a seal. It is an obvious way. It is a literal union of all sorts of tissues. Less obviously, it is a union of cells, of genes and hormones, of neutrons, of corpuscles, of electrons, and of less substantial bits as well. Particles of personality, molecules of memory, brain bits, soul scrapings, to say nothing of whole clouds of emotion. Copulation is an activity that, uniquely in humans, comes close to being a systematic touching and stroking of every square millimeter of two bodies and one that a man and a woman almost literally have to turn themselves inside out in order to perform. If this is not quite what actually takes place, it is least what the lovers appear to be striving for as each seems intent upon stripping off their very skin and wrapping around the other. Sex is a cheek-to-cheek waltz of cells across the hormone-polished dance floor of flesh. It is almost as if every atom of the body were lined up against every other atom of the body as a one-to-one correspondence and then vigorously rubbed together. And the sparks fly, ladies and gentlemen. Anybody have any trouble understanding that? The beauty, the majesty, the celebration, the holiness that God has given to us. We know I've gone it for procreation and for pleasure, and we're replaying the covenant that we have in God through Jesus Christ every time a husband and wife comes together in intimacy. If that's not beautiful, I don't know anything about beauty. So we see the idea that, and God is anti-sex, the very opposite, God is pro-sex in marriage. Now, that's a myth we need to throw out the window because I can tell you something. Christians have sex in a way that those outside of Christ will never experience. Christians have sex body to body and soul to soul. Non-Christians have body to body, and I'll tell you, body to body to body to body over and over again gets sort of old and monotonous, has no meaning, but body to body and soul to soul is explosive and beautiful. It grows, comes more magnificent as the years go by. I stand as a testimony to that. 
That's the way God designed it, ladies and gentlemen. That's the way it is. God is not anti-sex. God is pro-sex in every way you can read and study the holy word of God. Myth number one, kick it out the window. It's not true. Myth number two is, well, if you're going to get married, you'd better sow your wild sexual oats before you get married because it'll really help you in your marriage. You know, I've talked to a lot of people before they were married, many, many, after they were married, been married a short time, a brief time, a long time. You know, I can't find anybody, never found anybody that says, I'm sure glad my husband slept with all those gals before we were married. It really has helped our marriage beautifully. Or the other way around. Or the other way around. It's a myth. It's a myth. What happens when two bodies come together in copulation outside of marriage is, is a tragic thing because there's an implanting there. Now, we, we do not know when we are permanently or partially or temporarily implanted. We say we're born male and female, but there can be moments in the life of human beings when someone can come and molest and confuse and have a sexual experience that can totally reprogram that life we know that takes place. And therefore, we have to understand that in many marriages, there is a victim, and there's somebody who has victimized that victim. For example, if a man has had sex before marriage, marries a woman, let us say, who was a virgin before marriage, that man becomes a, that woman becomes a victim because the man has had previous sexual experience and she is a victim because it is more difficult for them to have that dynamic relationship God intended because the man has had this sexual experience. I'm getting intimate, but that's true. And therefore the marriage and its sexual celebration is victimized and the person who got exploited, perhaps, but became a victim now victimizes someone else. And there's a whole cycle of victim and victimization, victim and victimization, and it goes on and on and on and on in our 21st century. That's a fact. That's true. And therefore, there's that moment of implanting. It's so important. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. When I was probably five or six, four, three years old, I used to play dolls with my cousins. I'd wear dresses. Yeah, you know, play dolls, wear dresses. Look how cute I am. Yeah. In today's world, they'd say, well, evidently, Edwin, <laughs> you know, he wants to be a girl, and maybe he can become a girl. Maybe he should be a girl. Nonsense. But in a program of planting, I love the old story of the young eagle who was hatched with a bunch of chickens, and the eagle thought he was a chicken. 
and he tried to cluck and pick around. He'd see eagles fly over and boy, look at those birds. I wish we could do that. He could, he didn't know it because he'd been programmed, stamped, branded at an early age as if he were a chicken when he was an eagle. We've seen this many times. Ducks are bored and mother duck is killed and the ducks just gravitate at that strategic moment. We don't know exactly when it is with humans or animals and the ducks now follow along a dog. And that dog becomes the characteristic. They learn how to bark and they can't quack or waggle like they should, but they follow a dog. There's that moment of implanting. The tragedy is we read that one of every four females have been abused in this sexualized, really in many areas in the sexual area, demonic culture in which we find ourselves. So it's a difficult world, but the idea that someone should have sex before marriage, and they, they, I've heard it many times, well, you know, would you buy a car before you driven it? Would you buy a car that had been driven over 10,000 muddy roads and had two engines blown out before you bought it? It makes no difference. Intimacy is not like buying a car. Sex is not like purchasing a car. The analogy is spurious and erroneous and invalid. God advocates purity, 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 purity. And by the way, it works. A survey was taken that almost 70%, listen to me, 70% of those who were virgins before they married, when they got married, 70%, 69 to be exact, did not get divorced, and when they were polled, they talked about their sexual life becoming increasingly dynamic and beautiful every day they danced together in marriage. Ladies and gentlemen, oh, you're being, oh, listen, I'm just putting out God's program because it always works in every area of life. So it's a myth. Boy, it's good to have sex before you get married. So you wallow. That's a myth. The third myth is, well, I've messed up sexually and there's no hope for me. Man, you, you prescribed all of this and man, I did this, didn't do this. Let me tell you something, folks. We've all in different ways, everybody here messed up sexually. Everybody. If you're different, I've already told you, I want to meet with you, spend time with you, ask you a few questions. So we're all messed up. When none of us lived up to the standard because the image of God in us was broken, we were born, and some of us because of our choices. And by the way, only human beings make real choices. Only human beings can change. Somebody says, you can't change human nature. That is the dumbest statement ever uttered. The only thing that can change in this world is human nature. Everything else is programmed. Everything else works on the basis of instinct. But we can make choices and we can change. And that's the miracle of the grace of God. 
I can tell you that whatever you've done, whatever I've done in all the areas of life, particularly the area of sexuality, listen, we can be restored to purity and to innocence. Well, that's wild. No, it's not. It's the truth of the Bible. Anyone who is in Christ, they become a new creation and all things are new, N-E-W. Let me say it for the hundredth time. The word new means new, brand new, new creation. The old is gone. Don't have to tell God about it anymore. He's forgotten it. Isn't that amazing? God, did you? I want to make sure I've convinced. No, I know that, Edwin. Good night. We've been there, done that. He's forgotten. We're new. We're one in Christ. And therefore, we need to understand and draw from two of these attributes of God I did not mention. Two attributes. First of all, we need grace. We need grace, forgiveness. It's available, you can't earn it, it's there. Let's say here are two churches. One church is all about grace. Man, in this church you can come and live any way, do anything, have any past, we forgive you in the name of Christ, go and you're okay. Grace, grace, grace. A church that emphasizes grace, grace, grace becomes a church filled with libertines. What is that? I can do anything, say anything. Lie anyway, cheat, steal, commit adultery. It doesn't matter. I'm forgiven. I knew I'd be forgiven when I went and committed it. Okay, I'm forgiven. A church of grace, 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 grace is a church that ends up a swamp. There's no fiber there. There are no boundaries there. It ends up a swamp. Grace, grace, grace. Now, another church talks about Truth, truth, truth. Man, we live on the basis of truth. We've got God's principles. We've got God's boundaries. Thou shall not, thou shall not, thou shall not. And they're strong truth. And go to a church like that, they dangle you over hell every time you go. The fires are licking up at your feet. You have violated the truth of God. That kind of church is a desert based on law. And Paul spends... Most of his officials talk me about law, truth. And the church that just talks about truth, truth, truth is filled with judgment. Judgment, condemnation. Therefore, that church is a desert. You got a grace, grace, grace. You got a truth, truth, truth. Which is it? John 1 says, the word became flesh, the logos, God became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Ah, that's the body of Christ. Grace forgives, forgets, cleanses, puts us back to purity. And truth becomes the, the bounds upon which we live as we grow and grow and mature and mature. And that image of God begins to be replaced. We begin to reflect him more and more. So we have to have grace and we have to have truth. Where is that in the Bible? 
A woman caught in the act of adultery, brought before Jesus. The lawyers, the Pharisees said, hey, this woman, we have witnesses, we saw her committing adultery. What do you want to do with her? Moses says, the Jewish law, stone her to death. What do you say, Jesus? See, he's trapped. If he says, well, I agree with Moses, the biblical principle there, stone her to death, stone someone to death who's guilty of adultery, all of a sudden he's advocating the breaking of Roman law because the church could not kill someone. It's the Roman law. You're breaking the Roman law if you said stoner. At the same time, if you went and said, well, it's no big deal about it, you know, you don't have to have to stone her here, but, you know, just let her go. Well, all of a sudden, he's broken the Mosaic law. He, he, he slapped the Jews or he slapped the Romans. He's caught. What in the words is he going to say? You know what he did? I love this. Jesus just stooped down. All of them had stones in their hand. And he knelt down and he began to write on the ground. People have speculated. There are books written on what he was writing on the ground. I think I know exactly what he wrote. I think he wrote the name of the big old Pharisee there with a the stone and wrote his name. And then he mentioned another name. Ooh that he was involved with sometime in the past. And he, and that big guy sort of, the, the Bible says, they, he sort of backed away. And then somebody else came and he wrote his name down and mentioned another situation there. And he said, hmm. <laughs> and so they all began to come forward and Jesus began to write in the soil what these pietistic, super-religious people advocated. He wrote their names by that which they had done, and they all just sort of disappeared, and all you could hear was doom, 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 dropping of those stones, dropping of those stones. And then there was nobody there but the woman and Jesus. And Jesus says, uh, there's nobody here to judge you. <laughs> oh, I said, do you see the magnificence of this thing? There's nobody here to judge you. She says, no man, Lord. He said, neither do I judge you. That's grace. That's grace. That's grace. Then he said, go and sin no more. That's truth. That's when he comes. He gives us grace and he gives us truth. That's the fullness of Christ. But there's one thing missing. I need his grace. I need to live on the base of his truth. I need to mature, have this image of God growing in you and growing in me. But what does it take? Time. T-I-M-E. Doesn't happen. Shazam. It takes time. Tree. Not bearing fruit. Jesus walks by. The owner, of the, garden tells, the owner of the garden tells the gardener, cut down that tree. It's not being productive. The gardener says, would you give me a year? Let me prune the tree and dig some dirt about it and fertilize a little bit. Maybe in a year or so it'll produce fruit. It takes time. 
And that's time God gives to all of us by his grace on the basis of the truth so that image of God can become more and more apparent in everything you're about and everything I'm about. Grace, truth, plus time, the image begins to recreate it and begins to show more in you and more in me.